0: And uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's a couple people walking around with Bibles. You can just slip your hand up, they'll give you one. If you're using one of the Bibles that they're passing out to you, um, that you can find this passage on page uh, 578. But we're in John chapter 4, starting in verse 39 uh, this morning, looking at quite an incredible story. Um, and so uh, I don't really know much if you're like me, but uh, I absolutely love Uh, magic tricks. I love them a lot, and so if you are somebody who does any form of magic trick, uh, and I'm hanging out with you, I'm gonna be one of those very dense and naive people that's gonna watch and go, wow, like, how did you do that? That's incredible, you know? Whether it's the most simple of all card tricks or, or whatever it is that you can do, I'm one of those people you know, that's in the room and just my mind is blown by the simplicity of your little tricks that you can actually do. Um, and, and I also simultaneously, there's always a person in the same circle as me that once the trick is over, they always go, I know how he did it, or I know how she did it, and I'm, I'm not sorry, I really don't like you. The fact that you ruin it for people like me. Um, you're always like, I, I knew how that happened, and I'm like, I have no idea, and I wanna keep it that way, it's amazing. Um, but when I was in graduate school even, uh, I met a guy uh, named Drew, and uh, Drew could do magic. And I was always this way towards Drew. We'd hang out, and I was like, Drew, like, do something. You know, just like do a trick, do something. And he would pour water into his hand, and it would disappear. And I'm like, how did you do that? And some of you are like, I know how he did it. Well, I don't know how he did it, and I thought it was absolutely amazing. And I always wished that I, too, could do magic tricks. So it was, it was really amazing when I became a father, because uh, kids think you're a magician, like, I, I, I literally just go up to my, my young children, very, like, in front of their eyes, take a coin, put it behind their ear, pull it back and go, pull this out of your ear, and they're like, how did you do that, Dad? You know, they're just, like, blown away. And, but I learned something. I've discovered within this last year that my magic only works on you if you're seven years old or younger. Because uh, my older son became eight this year, and now he, like, always sees all the holes in my clumsiness when I'm trying to pull stuff off. But I would would assume that there's a lot of people out here in the world, people in this room potentially, who are like me, where every time you're around somebody like this, you're like, do something. Show me something. You like hanging out with people who could do magic tricks because you want something from them, right? You don't just want to be around them simply for the enjoyment of that person. And if you're in here this morning and you're a magician, one, let's hang out. I want to hang out with you. Two... Uh, you know what this feels like, that people would want to be around you and just ask you to do things for them, to entertain them. They want to use you for what you can do. The, The people that Jesus interacts with this morning were told they were seeking him because he could do magic tricks. But not magic tricks per se, because what he was doing, what Jesus was doing was actually real. And they were amazed by it. And so these people are approaching Jesus because what he can do, and he pushes back on them pretty hard because they're seeking him more out of what they can get from Jesus versus who Jesus actually is. And Jesus shows them, and he shows us this morning, that he is not, nor will he ever be, a means to another end. In fact, Jesus shows us this morning, he proves that he is the end. He's not a means to an end, but he is the end. And so I want us to see a couple things from this story. If you have your paper branch notes, you'll see where we're headed on the back. But I want us to sit in this question this morning and and honestly to ask ourselves, why do I seek Jesus? You're in this room, I mean, maybe you're not a believer, maybe you're not a Christian, but you're, you're seeking for Jesus, you're trying to understand who he is, or maybe you've been a Christian like your entire life, and you would say this morning, I'm seeking Jesus. I mean, you're at least here. Right, but why? Like, ask yourself, I want us to ask ourselves, why do I seek Jesus? And secondly, I want us to see that Jesus proves emphatically in this passage that he is not a means to an end. He is not. So first, why why do you seek Jesus? Well, let's start in our story in verse 39. I'll, I'll explain to you the, the end, because we're, we're jumping right into the end of a story. I'll explain to you in a second. But in verse 39, beginning here, we're going to see John, who wrote this gospel account of Jesus, he's gonna go to great lengths to show us this contrast. And the contrast that he is going to show us is how there's these two different groups of people that we're gonna read about, and they're approaching Jesus for very different things. And he's showing us why they are seeking him, okay? There's these Samaritans, and then there's these Jewish people who are, who are Jesus' people, okay? So this first group is the first group we're gonna see here, and that's the Samaritans, starting at verse 39. It says, many Samaritans from that town Believed in him, referring to Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. And this was the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his, Jesus' word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. So you have these Samaritans, okay? And Samaritans, if you didn't know, they are, they are people that pure-blooded Jewish people looked down on because Samaritans were only half Jewish. They were a mixed race, And what had happened over the years is that when other nations came in and conquered the Israelites, when they conquered the Jewish people, nations like Babylon and Assyria and and the Roman Empire, some Jews decided to intermarry, and therefore they were producing naturally mixed people. They weren't weren't pure-blooded Jews, okay? And so because of this, they were not only looked down on by the pure Jewish people, but they were actually viewed as a lower class in society, so this is full-fledged, full-blown racism, okay? That's what we're talking about here. And Jesus, in the story prior to this that I, that I was just referencing, okay? In the story prior to this this morning, he's connecting, you see him connecting with a woman who had had many husbands and many sexual partners in her life. And the guy that she's with right now, Jesus points out to her that he understands and he knows without her even telling him he knows that the guy that she's with is not even her husband, and Jesus meets this lady right where she's at, and he reveals himself to her, and he shows her that, that he knows her intimately, and he wants to redeem her, and he wants to restore her, and Jesus, you see in the story, he like lifts this woman's shame. It's really, it's really beautiful and powerful, and so she goes into this town, and she tells everybody about Jesus. He knows everything about me, and he met me right where I'm at. And, and so all these people, they come out, and they start hearing about Jesus. And so we, we read the result of this here that I just read, that they believe in Jesus. They believe that he is the Savior of the world, right? This is the summary that we just read. And so you see in verses 41 and 42, what does it say about the Samaritans? It says they believed him. Well, what does that mean? They believed Jesus really was the Son of God who God sent into this world to rescue and redeem it. So this is the response that Jesus receives from the outsiders of Jewish society. They believe in him. They worship him. They seek him. Why do they seek him? Well, it says in verse 42, he's the savior of the world. They seek him because he is the end, not the means. But then we have a second group. We introduce them in verse 43. It says, after the two days, Jesus departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So, we are told here that Jesus comes back to the same place. We're going to see in a second where he turns water into wine. If you're with us a couple weeks ago, Jesus did this at this incredible feast. And we are told something really confusing in these verses that I just read, which should kind of cause your ears, if you're following along in the morning here, it should cause your spiritual ears to perk up, like, why is John talking in this way? Because we are told, as a commentary by John in verse 44, that Jesus himself said that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And we have Jesus returning to his hometown. So you're expecting rejection, like, boo, we don't like Jesus, we're going to reject Jesus. But then what happens in verse 45? We see people in his hometown not reject Jesus. It says what? They welcomed him. They welcomed him. Well, was this like a whoops by John? This is like an editor editorial issue or something? Well, of course not, right? What John is trying to do is he's trying to show us why they welcomed him, They're welcoming him for the wrong reasons. Did they welcome Jesus because they had come to believe through his first miracle that he was the savior of the world? Nope, not at all. They they welcomed him because Jesus can do tricks. Jesus knows magic, right? Jesus offers entertainment. Jesus offers problem solving. They weren't seeking him as their savior and king of their lives. They were seeking Jesus so that he could do stuff for them. That's why they're after him. And we see this more clearly as we read on in a specific example and request of this official. And this is the third sign of Jesus that we're walking through these signs here in the gospel. And we're gonna see this starting in verse 46. We see this example more clearly portrayed about why these people in Jesus' hometown are seeking him. It says in verse 46: So he came again to Cana and Galilee, it's again referring to Jesus, where he had made water, made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. We see here an official who an official was a man of influence in this culture. He was pretty high up. He was also a man of affluence, okay? So he had influence and affluence, and he's come to a place in his life where he's desperate, okay? Where his influence has no pull, where his money can't buy him a solution. And, and, I, and just as an aside, I kind of think this is a fitting story for many of us who live in America, generally speaking, but especially in a city like Corvallis. I mean, Corvallis, generally speaking, is a city of great influence and great affluence, right? It's a city filled with people who claim that they have no need of God until, potentially, something happens in life where the influence that we have is no longer effective and where maybe our affluence and the, and the material things that we have, that we could resources we can use, aren't gonna work anymore. So this is this guy's situation, he's desperate. And we see him seeking Jesus, well why did he seek Jesus? He'd come to this really rough situation in his life to say the least and he desperately needed someone to fix it. And he thinks Jesus can be the solution to this problem. And what's wrong, his son is about to die. And so we see here, come to Jesus, and this word child in the Greek that he uses, it's a diminutive word here. And this, this guy is basically saying this. You, I want you to like imagine sort of like the emotion that this guy has by using this word. This guy is basically saying, please, Jesus, come before my dear little one dies. That's the word he uses. Before my dear little one dies. I mean, this guy is in agony, Okay. He's desperate, and any good parent w- would, would, would feel a similar way if this were their child, okay? I, I can be completely honest with you. Um, uh, the, this year, uh, we had our fourth child born, okay? Her name's Isla. She's six months old, and when she was born, I have never in that moment of my life when she was born felt more desperate and out of control in my entire life. Our daughter came out, the, tor- the cord was really tight around her neck. She was like lifeless, like not breathing or anything. And they sweep her away, they hit this like emergency, you know, yeah, and the, everything's going red and people are pouring into the room and we, don't even, we can't even see our child. In what felt like 10 minutes, which is probably more like a minute or so, uh, I, I didn't hear our baby breathing. I, I, I thought our, our baby was gone, that she was a goner. And I'm just processing in this moment, like, how am I going to console my wife? Like, what am I going to say? Like, this is insane. Like, this is crazy. I can't believe it's happening. I've never felt more desperate in my life that no influence or affluence that I had in my life could save or solve this problem, okay? And in a similar way, I would have to imagine that this is what this guy is going through. He can't fix it. He needs someone to do it. So he comes to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? What does he say? He says, you people want all these miracles or you won't believe. That's, that's his response. Doesn't that seem a little, like, insensitive of Jesus? I mean, this guy's in, in agony, and Jesus gives a response that seems kind of rude. But, but Jesus kind of does this often. Do you remember back when, when a couple weeks ago we talked about this, where Mary comes to Jesus, the mother of Jesus comes to her son, and says, hey, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, why is this my problem? Woman. That's what he says. Remember, it was like very kind of like jarring and rude. And Jesus does this to people sometimes with perfectly natural requests. He kind of puts them off. Why does Jesus do that? Well, believe it or not, the answer is always love. He always does it out of love. Well, how could I say that about this situation? This man, guys, he has no idea who Jesus is. There is no indication here that he knows who Jesus is, okay? All this man knows is that Jesus is Gandalf, basically, or that Jesus is Miracle Max, right? Princess Bride? Please tell me you've seen that. If not, that is your homework this afternoon, Princess Bride, okay? That's all he thinks Jesus is is Gandalf or Miracle Max or something. All he knows is that Jesus does miracles, that he's a conduit of magic. But Jesus doesn't just want to heal the son physically. He wants to heal this entire family, spiritually. And the only way that Jesus can do this is if this man can see beyond the magic and see who Jesus really is. And so Jesus challenges him twice. And the way he challenges him at first is by using this official as an example of this really widespread problem, okay? Because he says, unless you people see signs, he doesn't even address the man individually, he talks to the crowd. He's saying to the people of his homeland, you're all seeking me because I can do stuff for you. That's why you want me. And gratefully, the man doesn't say to Jesus on his first response, well, I don't need this fine, if that's how you're going to treat me, Jesus, like, I don't need this. That's what a good Oregonian would say, right? Like, fine, I don't need you, right? But that's not what he does. He gets more polite. What does he say? He says, sir, talks to Jesus, sir, please come before my little one dies. This guy has no idea who Jesus is, and we see that because he calls him sir, right? Right? He's not coming to Jesus to worship him as the Son of God. He wants something from Jesus. This man is solely interested in the well being of his child. I mean, do you see the contrast here that we're supposed to see? Right? There are two types of people in this world that seek after Jesus. People who seek him because Jesus is a means to an end. And there's people in this world who seek Jesus because he's the end. So, guys, we are confronted with this question this morning. Why do you seek Jesus? Like seriously, like why do you seek him this morning? If you are, like why do you seek Jesus? Really, why? What are you after? Why do you want him? Do you want something from Jesus? Or are you just after Jesus? I have a definition on the screen. If you know me, I love definitions. I think this is helpful. It says, a means to an end. This is the definition of a means to an end. This is it, a thing that is not valued or important in itself. But is useful in achieving another aim. That's what I'm talking about. And we do this all the time with Jesus. And we do this all the time with, all, with other people, honestly, right? And this starts at a very young age, okay? When I, when I go up to my children and I say, hey, we're going to go to Harper's house today, they get really excited, right? Or if we're going to go to someone else's house, they get really excited and they're not like, oh, I can't wait to play with Harper. They're like, oh, yeah, they have toys, that I want to play with, or like, they got a trampoline, or whatever. You don't have a trampoline, but other people do sometimes, and they get really excited, like, they have a trampoline, you know, and they get all pumped up about it, and I'm like, guys, you don't wanna just be with your friends? Like, oh yeah, totally, but we wanna play with the trampoline, really? Their friends, oftentimes, unapologetically to them, are a means to another end. And this this continues with us. I remember when I was a youth pastor back in the day, right? If I wanted guys, boys, dudes, right, to go to a camp, or an event, that I was putting on or helping put on as a youth pastor, and I would make my pitch to these guys, right, like why you should go and why I wanted them there, and like this will really change your life or whatever, right? I always could anticipate a question. You know what that question was? Are there going to be girls there? Every time, are there going to be girls there, right? And I just would hope there was going to be girls there, right? Like are there going to be girls there, right? To them, this social scene or event, it was a means to a greater end. That was a girl, right? Even as you age, people, right? Even as you age and, and dating in your life gets more serious and you start thinking about marriage, right? This reality still exists. Maybe it's just a little more subtle. Let me ask you, have you ever made a list? You know what I'm talking about, right? Have you ever made a list? You know, like what you want him to be like, whoever this person is, or whatever you don't want her to be like, Right? And don't lie, guys, I know that you have made this list as well. Right? Like, you know what I'm talking about, the list, the famous list. And if I could step on some toes this morning a little bit, I think a list, for example, just in this situation, that is a sheer sign that you are looking to people as a means to another end. You're not imagining a person, you're imagining a fictitious person that you want someone else to fit into. You have a different plan, a different aim, right? Right? Let's be honest. Uh, when you first fall in love with somebody, you, you have to admit that you often fall in love with them for the things that that person gives to you. And so you might say, like, oh, man, they're beautiful. They're so beautiful. But, but if maybe you're being honest, you might really be saying, I like the self-esteem that I get when a person like you, that looks like you likes somebody like me, Right? Or you say, oh, I, I love how much of a hardworking person you are. But, but maybe, maybe you're thinking it would really be great to marry somebody with such a successful and, and stable career, right? In the beginning, what makes a person attractive to you oftentimes are things that benefit you. It's things that you've imagined for yourself, that you want for yourself. And in the end, if you go on in that relationship, you've got to get past that to the place where you love people for just who they are just for being them. I mean, we like believe this objectively. We hate seeing people used as a means to another person's end. I mean, this morning, if, if, imagine if I, if I looked at my wife Elizabeth as a means to an end and you came up to me and you're like, hey, I'm trying to put together this list of all the reasons why people love Elizabeth, Okay and you're her husband, so you're gonna be you know, top on the list. We wanna know why you love Elizabeth, and I said, okay, yeah, well, she makes me food, and she takes care of my kids, and you know, she like does laundry for me and stuff, and she's pretty, and I've always wanted a pretty person because that means I can have this like trophy wife to display to the world, right? We would all agree right now I am a jerk, right? <laughs> like, I am a jerk if that is my reasoning why I love Elizabeth, you'd all unanimously be like, that guy's a jerk. Yeah, totally. Right? I can't believe he's a pastor, really. <laughs> you don't, you guys, we don't even like movies that portray relationships this way. We're like, no, that's, that's wrong. That's so wrong. You know what I'm talking about? Right? But we do this with Jesus all the time. All the time. Jesus can easily become a means to an end, and we can just accept that as okay. As if that's normal. I maybe mean, we could do that with physical health. Like, I'll, I'll seek Jesus as long as he keeps everybody that I really care about healthy. Right? That, that's why I need Jesus, because I don't want to screw up, because maybe illness will come into my life. We do this with emotional health. Like, I will seek Jesus as long as he makes me feel this way. Or, or maybe you seek Jesus for social reasons. There's a certain crowd of people that you want to be friends with and, and known by, a certain crowd, and they're all claiming Jesus. You say, I will claim Jesus so I could be a part of this social scene. It could be even a spiritual reason, guys. Jesus could be a means to an end, and you, and you do this ministry in your life, and you're like, I see Jesus as a means to blessing with his magic dust my ministry that it will be successful in my eyes. And Jesus is conduit towards another aim that we can have. Guys, would we love the power of Christ over the person of Christ? That is a big problem. When we love the power of Christ over the person of Christ, that is a problem for us, and that is an ugly thing. We often think, God, I, I need you to do this thing. God doesn't want our eyes fixed solely on the provision that we need, He wants our eyes fixed on the provider. That supplies that need. Well, maybe you're sitting here and you're like, well, how, how do I even know if this is me? Well, here's a couple tests, okay? Here's one, okay? If, if you don't get the provision that you're wanting right now in your life, right, the miracle that you're looking for, and you notice that your heart is growing bitter, right, towards God, maybe, that I, I think it'd be safe to say that Jesus has become an, a, a means to another end that you have. He's not the end if you're growing bitter towards him? Or this will be on the screen. This is a very famous question that was posed by a pastor nearly 20 years ago, and it really rocked the whole generation. It's a really humbling question. He says this, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, And all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters—could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus were not there? That's a sobering question. So, which which group are we in this morning—the Samaritan group, or Jesus is the end? That's why we seek Him the Jewish group where where Jesus is the means to another end. Real life-giving faith, guys, it comes from loving and seeking Jesus for who he is and not simply for what he can do for you. Well, how do you know this? How do you know that Jesus isn't a means to an end? That's a great question. And I think Jesus proves that he is not a means to an end. Let's start in verse 50. We see this incredible miracle, okay? Verse 50. Jesus said to the official, to him, go, your son will live. Right, so this guy says, Jesus, come down, heal my son. What does Jesus say? What's his response to this official? He says what? Go. Your son will live. That's honestly not a great response. That's a, that's a terrible test, actually. Well, why would I say that? Okay? This man says to Jesus, please, Jesus, go with me. Come with me. Come down to where my son is ill, ill, and, and heal him, okay? Come with me. The reason is because all we've ever known about miracle workers is that the miracle worker always had to go with, okay? He always had to be present. They had to be present to actually perform the miracle. Even the greatest miracle workers in the Old Testament, if you look at someone like Elijah or somebody, right? He himself, Elijah in the Old Testament, he heals a, a sick boy, another son, but he has to be present in order to do it. This is like the, the, you know, the pattern, I guess, that you would see here in scripture. Every single person has to be present, right? They had to be there. And so he says, come with me. And so do you see what is happening here? Jesus, guys, he's making a claim that must have been astounding. Because he says, I am not gonna go with you because I don't have to. I'm not gonna go with you because I don't have to. I will heal with a word. I mean, do you realize how God-like that is? What Jesus is doing here, how God-like that is. I mean, we say, let there be a house, and then we have to build it. We say, let there be dinner, and you have to cook it. Or you have to go buy it if you don't know how to cook, right? You can't just, stuff doesn't just appear, correct? Right, but God says, let there be light, light shines, God says, apple tree, apple tree, right? This is how like God works. He speaks, things happen. Do you see, okay, do you see? Jesus is claiming this massive God-like power. He's saying, guys, I'm not just another miracle worker. I'm not a means to your end. I'm not just here to dish out some solutions to your problem. I am the end. Do you see that? And so in his response, the man, he's saying, I want you to trust me. I'm not going with you, but trust me, your son will live. I said this is a terrible test because this man is confronted with the fact that if Jesus can't do the things that he's claiming to do, his dear little boy is a goner. He has to put his whole life into trusting Jesus here. He's confronted with this question, can I trust Jesus and his claim? What does the man do? We read it, right? He, he took Jesus at his word and he departed. He believed in Jesus' power, but he's not just believing in what Jesus can do, he's believing Jesus. And guys, this official, he walked from Cana to Capernaum, which I know many of you have never been there, neither have I, okay? But looked it up, it's 20 miles, right? 20 miles, I didn't get the 20 miles from verse 46, but you see this, this is where he had to walk to and from, 20 miles. It's like you leaving today and walking to Monmouth. Right, that's, that's kind of like the same distance, right? Do you think that this guy turned around and started walking to Monmouth this morning, right? Filled with high spirits. Do you think Jesus said, go, your son will live? And he's just like, I have no doubts. I'm claiming this healing. Do you think that's what this guy was doing? I doubt it. I, I bet he left a tad scared. But honestly, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect the outcome. Why? Because it's the object of your faith, not the quality of your faith or the strength of your faith that saves you. It's always the object of your faith. It's not the quality of your faith or the strength of your faith that is going to save you. So if if this stool this morning was a very weak stool and you could just look at it and go, please don't sit in that stool. It's going to collapse. And I said, I don't care. I have faith, so much faith that this stool will not collapse. And I go, and I sit in it. What's going to happen? You're all going to laugh at me, right? Right? Because a, a stool collapsing on somebody is funny, right? Most of the time, at least I think it's funny. Okay? Right? This is, this is what our reaction would be to the situation. Or, if I came to you tonight and I, this stool looked very legitimate, which it's a good stool, it's the majestic stool, right? If it's, if it's a great stool, okay, it looks really sturdy, and you're like, yeah, it looks like it would hold you, that would be fine, I think it will, it's a solid stool, and if I'm sitting here and I'm like, oh, I don't know, geez, I don't know, oh, gosh, I don't know if I could do it, guys, I don't know if I could sit on the stool, like, I don't, I don't know if I have enough faith, but if I sit on the stool, what's going to happen? I'm going to be okay, Right? going to hold me? How much faith do I need for this stool to hold me up? Just enough to sit in it. How much belief, how much faith does this guy in our story need to have? Just enough to go home. That's all he needs. Just enough to go home. You see, you don't have to have perfectly wonderful faith It's your faith that connects you to Jesus. It wasn't the man's faith that saved the son. It was Jesus' power that saved the son and his faith that was connected to that power. I mean, how much did he have to have? He had to have just enough faith to do what Jesus said. That's all he had to do. Uh, In the late 19th century, this will be on the screen here, okay, there was a famous French tightrope walker named Charles Blondin, okay? I'm sure anybody who knows French, I'm supposed to say it differently. I don't know how to say Blondin other than as an Oregonian person, okay? So Charles Blondin, all right? He's French. And he was famous, guys, for walking uh, on a tightrope over Niagara Falls, okay? And he did amazing things. That's the best picture I could get you. I'm really sorry. I said 19th century, did I not? Right, okay. Sorry. This guy, guys, he walked across on a tightrope, Niagara Falls blindfolded, Okay? He also uh, pushed a wheelbarrow over that had 200 pounds in it, okay? He walked across with his manager on his back. At one point, point, and this one's depicted here, he walked and sat down midway on a tightrope and cooked an omelet and ate it. This guy's just a show-off, right, okay? One time, he took a chair, and he took the chair out there and he balanced on it. He stood on it, and not with two legs, right? That would be crazy enough, Right on one leg of the chair, he stood on it and balanced on this tightrope, okay? This guy, he is, we are different people, okay? This guy is a completely different person. But people would say, man, there is no one like this guy. There's no one that can do what he do. And as the urban legend, the story goes is this. One time during these feats, there, you know, there's a crowd that would always gather, and he walks over the crowd with his wheelbarrow. And he says, hey, you just saw me, you know, carry the 200 pounds across you know, do you think I could take another a human being across the wheelbarrow? A- and they were like, yes, of course, yes, we believe you can do it, right? You know, like, do you, are you sure? Do you really think I can, I can, you know, push over a human being in this wheelbarrow? And they're like, yes, we totally believe, Charles, you can do it, right? And he goes, all right, who wants to get in? Just crickets, right? Just silence. I'm assuming there's a waterfall sound in the background, I don't know, right? But no one's talking. No one's like, yeah, man. I'm in, right? See, it was one thing to have intellectual assent, and it was another to actually believe, okay? And we often treat Jesus like Charles Blondin. He's someone who does things for us. He entertains us. He's a means to an end. And what Jesus did to this official is he asked him to see past the entertainment, to see past the utility even of Jesus, and actually get into the wheelbarrow And this man did. He did. And let me tell you, you won't get into the wheelbarrow, which you need to get into the wheelbarrow, if you simply view Jesus as a means to an end. You you need to see beyond the provision that you ask for and that you want so desperately this morning, and you need to see the provider. You need to see beyond the miracles that you're hoping for. You need to see the miracle worker, You need to see beyond the means and have your eyes land wholeheartedly on the end. Jesus, he's the only one. Well, how do you get there? I mean, how do you get to the point where Jesus is no longer a means to an end, but where he's the actual end? How do you get there? If if Jesus this morning, if you're like, he's simply a utility in my life, he's like a Swiss army knife to me, right? How, How does he no longer stay that way for you if you leave here this morning? Honestly, I think the answer to that is found in this image of parent and child that we see in this story. That's what I mean. Because if you were to come up to me tonight or this morning, still, I'm still getting used to the mornings, okay? If you were to come up to me this morning, okay, and you ask me why I love one of my kids, right? Take your pick of the four. Why do you love your kids? I would respond very honestly to you this way. I would say, I don't know. I, I just love them because I love them. Because they're mine. They're my kids, right? I don't, I don't love them because they do things for me. I'm not going to lie. Sure, I make them rub my feet sometimes. I fully do, unapologetically, okay? Uh, it feels good. It feels great. They're little tiny hands. Do a terrible job. but It's better than, <laughs> it's better than uh, my wife rejecting me for it, so yeah. Um, but I don't love them for what they can do for me. I really don't, okay? Uh, case in point. My six-month-old has never done anything for me, right? Ever. Zero stuff. She won't even give me a hug. She literally won't. Right? But I, guys, I am a smitten man. You ask me why? Why do you love Isla so much? She's never done anything for you. I go, She's mine. I love her because I love her. That's it. She's mine. This is what I'm trying to say. When when this man got home. When he believed in Jesus and actually walked to Monmouth, so to speak, when he got home, what does it say? He believed in his whole household. You know why? You know why? Because he knew that Jesus loved him. That's why. When he got home and he saw his son alive, he said, Jesus didn't blow me off. He didn't blow me off. He wasn't just trying to dismiss me. He loved us and he saved us. So what's happening. We have way more evidence, though, for for how Jesus hasn't blown us off this morning. We have the cross. We have the cross. When that man was going home, this official, as he was going home, as he walked away, Jesus might have said in his heart, you're not going to lose your son. I'm going to save your son. Even though you don't deserve it, but you're not going to lose your son, but my father will lose His son. Why is it that this man didn't lose his son? Because Jesus saved his son. Why did Jesus save him? Why did Jesus save him? That man didn't lose his son because God the Father gave his son, Jesus, away to the world. Jesus was present in the world and God the Father gave him away to the world. The one who's actually performing the healing, Jesus, is the son who will not be saved at the point of his own death. You see that? Do you hear the agony of this official's voice in the thought of losing his own son? A father losing a son is agony. But it was infinitely more agonist of the father in in the image, in the reality of him losing his son, Jesus. See, Jesus can save us because God the Father didn't save Jesus, his son, on the cross. And when you see that, when you begin to love Jesus for who he is and not just for what he can do for you, that's what it will take, is seeing that. Hear this, guys. Jesus doesn't love you for what you can do for him. Jesus' love is pure. Jesus loves you because he loves you. Do you believe that? The more that saturates your heart, the more you'll be free to love God with a pure love where Jesus is the end and he's no longer the means. So, I'm serious. Why do you seek Jesus this morning? Is he a means to an end for you, or is he the the end? Is he really the end? Jesus proves to us this morning that by healing this son with a mere word, he's not just another miracle worker, he is the end. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you believe it? If you do, then you can get in the wheelbarrow this morning. You can trust him. Father God, we do want to come to you and...